Good afternoon and welcome to the Clearwater Jazz Holiday Foundation's Young Lions Jazz Master Virtual Sessions. Today's educator is Alejandro Arenas and the What I Love About James Jamerson, part of our continuing What I Love About series. Just a reminder, participants are muted upon entry and during the masterclass. We appreciate your cooperation to remain muted for the courtesy of others. If you have specific questions, please feel free to use the chat feature in the toolbox, um, or you can ask on the questions at the end. We'll reserve some time with the educators. Uh, we hope you enjoy today's session. More upcoming free sessions will be posted at www.clearwaterjazz.com education. And remember your feedback and any future session topic suggestions are welcome. So please email us at info at clearwaterjazz.com. Also be sure to check out the studio archive of the past video sessions at clearwaterjazz.com's education and outreach section brought to you by Blue Water Wealth Management at Stewart Partners and Duke Energy, as well as our Young Lines podcast available wherever you stream. And that's brought to you by our friends at Marine Max Clearwater. Search Young Lines Jazz Master Virtual Sessions uh, wherever it's streaming. So just some other sessions that we've had, Alejandro. We had bass styles, an approach to playing swing, funk, and more. I know that was a great one. Also, we had bass sound from pickups and amps to technique and more. Here's a fun one. Fun with fun and arranging, reimagining existing composition. Also, he also did some What I Love About series. We had Wilbur Ware, Oscar Pettiford, and uh, Jan, John Patatucci. That was very, very good. I really enjoyed that. So just a little bit about Alejandro. He was born in Colombia, where he started his musical career playing flamenco and classical guitar. He picked up the bass while he attended college in Bogota, where he performed in the salsa and Andean music ensembles, as well as the school's orchestra. During his high school years, he performed with different independent bands with styles ranging from salsa, blues, rock, and heavy metal. Upon graduating high school, he moved to Gainesville, Florida. There he worked as a freelance musician while being exposed to different genres such as reggae, jazz, and funk. He earned his AA in music studies from the Santa Fe College Community, Community College, where he worked unpacking books in the morning, studying during the day, and playing gigs by night. In the midst of the chaotic time in his life, he developed a deep love for jazz, which drove him to learn to play the upright bass. He holds a bachelor's of music in jazz performance and a master's of music from the University of South Florida. During his studies at USF, he toured Italy, France, and Germany with the Jazz Ensemble One and the Jazz Tech, performing at different festivals. Uh, in addition to being an adjunct professor for the Mirror Program over there at St. Petersburg College, Alejandro is very active as a versatile performer, working with many artists. And get this, he also co-leads the award-winning group La Lucha. So Alejandro, the stage is all yours. All right, thank you so much, Michael. So today, uh, I am going to talk about 
a bass player that's not really a jazz bass player. He's not known within, he is known within the jazz community, but he's not known for playing jazz specifically. So I'm talking about James Jamerson. Uh, James Jamerson, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about his bio once I start, but I, what, what, one thing that I wanted to say about him, well, actually, let me just share the screen now so you can see the picture here at the top. <laughs> All right. So James Jamerson was actually um, the bass player in a lot of Motown stuff. So if you've listened to any of uh, The Temptations, The Supremes, Marvin Gaye, uh, Stevie Wonder, etc., etc., you've heard James Jamerson's playing. So I will explain why he's not as well known as he should be, but uh, my personal connection to this is that he was kind of the catalyst for me to start playing jazz. Um, basically, there was when I was learning to play bass, uh, I really fell in love with a lot of, of Motown music, a lot of music from the label for Motown. And um, later I discovered who James Jefferson was, and he was the bass player in a lot of those records. Uh, so that piqued my curiosity because I, I was learning to play a lot of those bass lines and were very creative. And then uh, I started reading on him and found out that one of his main influences was Ray Brown on bass. So um, that I didn't know who Ray Brown was at that moment. So um, I went and looked it up and I found, well, his son used to say his son was also, also a bass player and said that he used to have the Oscar Peterson trio playing around his house all the time and um, so I didn't know these names so I looked them up and I found Ray Brown in the Oscar Peterson trio about the about the album Night Train which I highly recommend it uh, with Ed Thickpen on drums and it just blew my mind it's just it was just kind of a gateway to uh, <laughs> to um, jazz for me and you know you you have certain albums that open that door I had tried to listen to jazz earlier on, but I just kind of hadn't found what I was at what I the, I guess if you want to put it this way, the type of jazz that I was into. I think there's you're ready for certain things. There's kids that very early on they just fall in love with jazz. Um, that wasn't my case, and it wasn't necessarily that I didn't like it. It just didn't pick my interest in, as, as other styles did. But then later it did, and it just dedicated my musical career to play in jazz mostly but uh also other styles because i grew up within uh playing a lot of different styles so this is where kind of james jamerson ties it all in because he is uh kind of a crossover uh from jazz into the pop world if you will so i'll explain a little bit more so let's start with a little bit of his bio um he was born january 29 1936 in south carolina uh he learned to play the piano during childhood he was you know kind of he had a, a bad accident during his childhood that kind of left him a little bit of a loner and I think music was kind of his escape um, and he really had an aptitude for it very early on and uh, in 1954 his family moved to Detroit and he began playing the upright bass in school and you know by all accounts um a lot of people say that he was just a natural on it. You know, he just kind of fit right with the instrument and just kind of the moment he grabbed it, he just, he was able to produce sound. Obviously he played some piano before he was self-taught on piano. And then, you know, um, 
he got good enough that he started playing around in jazz clubs um, in Detroit and doing small recording sessions. Keep in mind, you know, he's not even 20 years old uh, at this point. So he was really into a lot of that stuff. Um, I allowed him to play in jazz. And that's where that was his first love. Um, but around 1959, he did he did his first session with Motown, um, which was a label. If you don't know what Motown is, we're going to be talking about a, a lot about it. But Motown was a record label that Barry Gordy started in, in Detroit, um, and basically changed the music world uh, out of a basement of his basement in his house uh, in Detroit. Um, he was able to groom all of these fantastic artists, The Temptations, The Supremes, uh, Marvin Gaye, um, Mary Wells. You know, later on, he signed uh, the Jackson 5 and all that. So it became a huge operation. And it, it, you can actually go and visit the Motown Museum in Detroit. I was able to do that. It was just incredible. And um, there's a lot of history there. But a lot of the people, a lot of the musicians that worked for Motown were actually jazz musicians around Detroit. Uh, they used to kind of be pickup bands for a lot of people that passed through town and they just played gigs. And then kind of their side gig was doing recording sessions. Uh, and Motown was this. So it was kind of early R&B type of stuff. Um, and there were other bass players that played for Motown before and while he was there too but he was kind of the secret sauce if you will for Motown uh to the point that they would move recording sessions just um to be able to accommodate his schedule um now later a little bit later on you know around 1960-61 due to the style of music he began to play the electric bass that you know the, the it was just an instrument that cut through a lot more and he really made it his own because he was so comfortable on the upright bass that he just wanted the electric bass to sound like the upright bass. So what he used to do is he had really old strings, flat wound strings, with really high action. And they say that he never, unless he absolutely had to, he never changed the strings. So the, and he put a, a piece of foam, I'll show you, you can see in, in the next slide, you'll see a picture of his bass. Um, he had a piece of foam under uh, by the bridge, which kind of muted the sound a little bit. Um, during this time, you know, he started playing in a lot of, 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 along with the Funk Brothers, that was the name of the studio band, a lot of the same guys, um, with some people that came in and out. But he really played in a lot of number one hits that were just being listened to around the world. And he, so he, he kind of became of a living legend in the studio world, but he was largely known, unknown outside it. And part of it was that Motown didn't use to credit the musicians on the records other than the main artist. Um, and the reason they did that is because they didn't want people to find out how they got that sound. Um, they were very secretive because at this point, um, people were just trying to find their sound. So they didn't, um, they found a recipe of musicians that worked well together. And, you know, they did do some secret work. They had, they were um, eventually the Funk Brothers, including James Jamerson, kind of became under contract with Motown exclusively, but they would do some sessions. Uh, they weren't going to be credited anyway in the other sessions. So 
you know, for some extra money, they went and did some of those sessions. And again, a lot of these guys were still playing jazz. Um, unfortunately, due to health issues, um, you know, related to heavy drinking and Motown moved to L.A. in the 70s, um, kind of caused his career to decline. You know, it, it, unfortunately, that's what happens with a lot of, uh, of, of musicians. You know, he was kind of bitter during his lifetime that he wasn't credited. You know, a lot of people admired him. A lot of bassists knew that he was a very unique talent and that he really kind of deserved a lot of credit for the Motown sound. Obviously, Very Gordy had this whole operation around it, but, you know, he never kind of got his due. And unfortunately, he passed away on August 2nd, 1983. Um, so... I'll talk a little bit about what I love about him. So his time and groove, again, we're not going to listen to any jazz tunes today. We're going to listen to a lot of Motown, which was where he really played. But you'll, you'll, you'll find the jazz influence in a lot of that stuff. Um, but his time feel and the groove were, were just incredible, just Im impeccable. I mean, it's, it's Motown is, is the music from Motown is music that still to this day, you can just put it on. And I, I, for me, the hardest thing for this video was actually stopping the, <laughs> stopping myself from listening um, to the music, kind of like cutting it like, oh, I only need this part, but because it's just infectious in a good way. So not a good term in a pandemic, but it is they're kind of infectious grooves in, in, in that sense. And he had very inventive bass lines. A lot of the time later on in Motown, they would they used to write out the the a lot of the music, but he also he they gave him a lot of liberty because they knew he could create something very unique uh, that kind of had that Motown sound. Uh, and part of that was the ability to be to play busy, but be effective. So he still was able to keep the role of the bass, but sometimes he was almost like soloing, but somehow he didn't get in the way of the vocals and, and the music was still grooving and he was still making it happen. And we'll talk about it a little bit about how he was able to do that. Um, I love his unapologetic approach to being himself as a musician. I say unapologetic because early on, you know, there were producers were kind of like, oh, that's not the sound I'm looking for, or or you're playing too much, or they would say that. But the musicians love playing with him. And the and people in general, they realized that they were hearing in Motown music, especially in the tracks that James Jamerson was playing on, they were hearing something unique that attracted them more than other stuff. So um, that's kind of what he brought to the music. He really was able to inject the music with this extra layer of, of, of mixture groove and melodic bass lines and really kind of ba a bounce that he just had in his time feel. So I'll show you a couple of examples. So early on, on some of the Motown stuff, he was playing um, upright bass. That's what he wanted to play. And that's, you know, that was kind of the, the, the norm at the end of the 50s because the electric bass wasn't really a very popular instrument yet. Uh, in fact, um, the, the Fender Precision bass, which was the bass that he switched to later or that he got later, the electric bass, uh, was just about becoming popular at this time. Um, and 
you I'll, I'll show you this uh this is the end of the song by mary wells my guy um and he actually plays upright on this so i want you to listen for a few fills here i'll, I'll play it and then i'll i'll talk a little bit about it no So you can hear there um, a very Ray Brown-esque approach to to that part there Ray Brown just had this ability and I'll be actually talking about doing one of these about Ray Brown but he had this ability to um do this fills these arpeggiated fills all around the bass especially with those triplets uh, drops that he did a lot um and you can hear him he's kind of taking that opportunity it's kind of like the band is getting a little bit quieter and he has this space to kind of fill it so he's just making the best out of it but you can hear how that's a purely jazz uh, influenced approach on a group that's very much not I mean, it has a swing bounce, but it's a backbeat groove. It's a solid, you know, simple groove. Um, so the next one I'm going to show you is kind of a rarity. This is not very well known. It's a song called Mutiny by Junior Walker on the All-Stars. Uh, Junior Walker was a sax player and he um, is better known for the song Shotgun. Um, in Motown. This is an instrumental track and um, what I love about this track is the way he develops the bass line throughout. Um, he's going to start playing a little bit of the broken feel and he's playing electric on this uh, and there is actually a short bass solo on this as well so I'll, I'll play it and then I'll talk about it. <laughs>
Bridges. just i love that <laughs> i love that track just because of what he does on it it's just the way he builds the baseline throughout and when he starts walking it's just you know gets into that that groove i mean he's always in the groove on this but it's just the way he builds it and come you know, the way he comes out of the solo and if you notice his solo is kind of an extension of the way he plays a lot you know he's not i did a presentation on wilbur where um early early in one of these sessions and um it's a very similar approach in the sense of the, his soloing is more of an extension of how he's playing the bass lines one of the things that he does very well is that he stays when you think he's going to go up in the register he actually goes drops it back so you heard a couple of times he just kind of played like almost sustained um like an open e or a low note for a couple of times it to get create this little bit of tension and then he just takes it back up so the minute you hear him going up he just drops it back down and that's a very kind of upright bass approach he used a lot of open strings on his bass lines on the electric bass um, now also keep in mind I'll show you actually the next clip I'm going to show you this but he had he played all of these basses with just one finger in his right hand um, a lot of bass players, especially in the early days, a lot of them just walked with their finger on the side, you know, with one finger, you know, um, plucking the string when playing walking bass lines. And even though he wasn't really, I mean, in this particular case, he was playing some walking bass lines, but everything he played, he just had the same approach. They, it, it was so good, in fact, that they called his finger the hook <laughs> because it was kind of legendary. So, um, the next video I'm going to play you um, is a rare video of him playing live. Uh, there's not a lot of them. Most of his work, he did a lot of, he did some touring, but um, this is actually from the first album that he was credited on, which is Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Um, 
he played bass on this on most of the tracks uh, certainly on the title track and Bob Babbitt who was the other bass player uh, one of the other bass players in Motown played on some of the other tracks but this is a rare video of him playing it live with Marvin Gaye and this is 1972 so he had been working with Motown since 1959 and it took all this time until 1972 to actually get credited and it took Marvin Gaye recognizing that recognizing that <clears throat> in order for him to get credited um if you're familiar with this song uh if you're not you should definitely listen to it um i'm gonna play only part of here of this but his bass line is kind of very iconic and and one approach one thing that he did that he brought from jazz was he was always improvising um he was always kind of you, he rarely would play the same thing twice unless it was a written part that called for it but i believe this baseline originally was kind of written out for him as a as a study one of the producers had studied his style and actually kind of wrote a baseline in the james jamerson style because when you couldn't get james jamerson on the gig you know, at least you could get a bass player to read a bass line kind of like that. But in this case, it was actually James Jamerson playing, and I'm sure he improvised over it too. But here I'm going to show you um, a little bit of this, and you'll see he, he'll be behind Marvin Gaye a little bit into the video, and you can see his right-hand technique. So um, I love that video. It's it's really you know something that's unique about this when you think about it is that a lot of these guys would play the track in the studio and maybe never play it again unless they went on tour with the artist. And a lot of the time, Motown wanted to keep them in the studio so they wouldn't really let them go out on tour with the artist unless they were doing um, the Motown used to do the Motown review a little bit earlier on where they would take all of their famous groups. Um, on tour and he would be part of those groups um, sometimes um, but yeah it's it's really incredible the way uh, if you compare this to the original recording um, he's playing very different stuff but the the spirit of the song is still there and now something that to keep in mind in a lot of these things is that the other instruments are playing more patterns they're playing more specific parts which is freeing the bass to do more you know that's why he was able to get away with a lot of this stuff because the other guys were kind of just playing more specific parts but he was just kind of floating above this whole thing when um so it's just something to keep in mind with what, what 
how he made this work. And one thing to, well, actually, I'm going to show you another recording next that has a transcription on the video. Um, and this is Stevie Wonder's For Once In My Life, which actually has more of a jazz chord progression. Um, and in fact, it's kind of become a little bit of a, of a jazz standard. I wouldn't, you know, not a lot of people do it, but you know, it, it's, it's more jazzy than, than most of these songs. And we'll, you'll see the, the bass line passing through, but kind of watch, uh, watch for the contour of the bass lines. Somebody actually did a cool video, Jack Stratton from Wolfpack, um, did a cool visualization of this like he did uh, like a graphic um a graphic um kind of description or, or, or visualization really of the baseline kind of like shows the contour of the baseline so he had this really cool thing where he had this bass drive i talked about it earlier where he would just kind of drop every every time you think he's going to go up he would just actually kind of like drop down to a low a low note a lot of kind of octave jump so you'll see that the range on this is not huge um he was really able to in, a, in an era if you listen to some kind of rock players from this era um this is an era where the bass players were really freeing themselves you have people like jack bruce um and um you know paul mccartney to a certain extent with the beatles they were all influenced by james jamerson but um you a lot of guys were thinking upwards on the bass a lot of them actually started playing some short scale basses which gave him a little bit more facility they kind of cut through the mix in a lead kind of way a little bit cleaner but james jamerson was kind of doing the opposite he really kind of was able to navigate the bass in the lower register in a really cool way. Um, so he never, he, he was never really fighting for range, if you will, with other instruments. Um, and had this really cool wave since it was always kind of there. He was always, there's some recordings in the way the bass drum was recorded that you can kind of hear this almost like the same kind of frequency, almost the same pitch sometimes which creates a really cool uh, vibe with, with what he's playing. So I'll play a little bit of this and um, kind of check out the contour of the baseline as you go, as, as it passes, and he uses a lot of chromaticism. So check this out. For once in my life, I have someone who needs me, someone I've needed so long. Unafraid, I can go where life leads me. Somehow I know I'll be strong. For once I can touch what my heart used to dream of long before I do. Oh, someone warm like you would make my dream come true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For once in my life. Sorrow hurt me, not like it's hurt me before. For once, I have something I know won't desert me. I'm not alone anymore. For once, I can see this is mine, you can't take it. Long as I know I have love, I can make it. For once in my life, I have someone who needs me. 
sorry for Stevie, I caught his harmonica solo, which is great. Uh, but he is just uh, really good with some chromatic um, connection between chords that comes from jazz. You know, when you when you play walking bass lines, really the goal is to be able to connect each chord more as, as effectively as possible while outlining the chord progression. But in order to use a different sound every time and not sound like you're just repeating a pattern, um, a lot of what you do is based on having the ability of seeing what works that will connect one chord to the others. Sometimes you use chromaticism, sometimes you use um, you just go through a fifth or half step below, half step above. There's different ways to do it, but once you're dealing with something like this, where you, where you have a different rhythm, you have more notes, so you're more kind of in a soloistic type of uh, setting in to a certain extent because you're not just you're not bound by quarter notes. Um, so he was really a master of being able to connect the chords that way without letting the groove really suffer. Um, again, lots of open strings, which kind of allowed him to play um, some intervals like sixes and 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 um, kind of really a, a, some of these songs really you can play a lot of the major pentatonic on because it gives it that major that bluesy but happy sound at the same time. Um, so it's really a great, this, this bassline is just a masterpiece. Um, and I'll show you another, this is the last video I'm going to show you, um, which is a cool, cool thing, uh, thanks to uh, what we have available to, um, through YouTube these days, <laughs> which is um, kind of, uh, well, you can find a lot of isolated basslines actually that, that people take from the multi-track recording. Not all, not all of these are available because um, Motown recorded to two track early on, so they had to record a whole band into two tracks. Uh, later on, they upgraded to four tracks and then eight tracks, and in LA, they had more tracks, but uh, some of the earlier recordings, you know, you couldn't, you can't really isolate the bass. Um, and this one's actually, the, I, somebody was commenting on Facebook, on, sorry, on YouTube, that this may not be James Emerson playing, but it's a transcription of James Emerson playing it. Uh, it sounds you know, very good, <laughs> very close to what it is. So I don't know for a fact that this is James Jamerson playing, but it is his baseline. It is what he played on this. Um, and this is just the voice of Gladys Knight um, and the baseline that James Jamerson recorded on this. Um, so check it out. It's just, again, it's just the voice and the, and the bass. This is not the way it was recorded. Everybody, you know, they took all the instruments out, but uh, check it out. Mm, I bet you're wondering how I knew Baby, 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 about your plans to make me blue With some other girl you knew before Between the two of us girls, you know I love you more It took me by surprise, I must say When I found out yesterday, don't you know that I heard it through Mine. Don't you know that I heard it through the grapevine? And I'm just about, just about, just about to lose my mind. Oh, yes, I am. 
listen to me. Boy, take a good look at these. So it's pretty remarkable how you can hear the chord progression really well uh, without a chordal instrument actually playing chords. So he was outlining the chord changes extremely well while playing this really busy bass line. You can hear the tone of the flat bone strings with the high action and that foam kind of gives it this percussive sound. So he just has this, this incredible ability to keep that groove but still play very complex rhythms without really getting in the way of the vocals. Part of that had to do with being able to stay in the lower register with a tone that wasn't muddy. You know, it's kind of a fat tone, but it's not, there's not a lot of sustain. A, a lot of times with bass sound, if you can get, if you get kind of a fat sound, but kind of a, a wider beat, if you will, with a lot of resonance, it can get muddy in a, in a way that notes start kind of bleeding into each other. And there's not as much definition because of the way he played and the attack that he had to every note and all of that. Uh, he was very be he was able to play very clean sounding bass lines. So, you know, the remarkable thing too is that a lot of the times they this would be maybe the second pass through the tune or something like that. It would, it, it would could it's very possible that they would do one or two takes to do a rehearsal take and do that. But you can hear there's a lot of jazz vocabulary in his lines. Um, has a lot of those, especially on the, on this particular song, you can hear, um, those triplet drops again, very jazz kind of, a, 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 I don't want to call it stereotypical, but it's kind of like a, a jazz lick, if you will. So he was really able to navigate this world, um, being kind of a pioneer and i'll talk about that a little bit that was this was the last video so let's talk about the conclusions on this and part of the reason um i picked james jamerson even though he's not a jazz bassist in the sense of having played with coltrane or miles or you know like a lot of the guys that i've done before is because he is extremely influential he really has influenced you know, Jaco Pastorius named him as one of his influences. John Patitucci did too. A lot of guys that grew up in that era with Motown. And a lot of that had to do with the popularity of Motown, you know, because the music was heard all around the world. So a lot of um, bass players, aspiring bass, aspiring bass players who didn't really know him by name, knew him by sound. And when they were learning to play Motown songs, they were learning to play like James Jamerson. So later on, when his name came uh, about, uh, thanks to this guy, um, I don't remember, uh, Alan, Alan Slutsky, I think is in his name, but he goes by Dr. Licks. <laughs> he wrote this book called Standing in the Shadows of Motown. Uh, it's a great book. It's a biographical, um, it has his biography, but it also has a lot of transcriptions of his bass lines and they're actually played by bass players um, who he influenced and there's a list there Will Lee uh, who played with the with the Brecker brothers um, just a ton of very very influential bassists in their own right you know that were influenced by James Jamerson um, so he reached beyond the scores could figure could listen to Motown which was considered pop music R&B 
uh, and pop music, they could listen to it and be inspired by what he was playing because it, it was to me it's kind of like okay you you can be very creative within a simpler groove a simpler not so much a groove because i think the grooves are complex in their own sense but uh, a simpler harmonic environment if you will so to me he represents the essence of jazz as an influence in pop music because of that because uh being able to play jazz requires a deep knowledge of harmony so because this allows the, the player to have better tools to improvise. Uh, his basslines were a representation of that, of that jazz knowledge applied in a pop context. Again, he was playing chromatic stuff. He was playing a lot of stuff that, that you know, wouldn't necessarily fit in that role. And yes, a lot of, a lot of the roots of this music were in the blues and, and jazz, right? But he kind of brought the complexity of a more modern vocabulary and put it into that um and the incredible thing is that he was able to balance the creativity and freedom of improvisation but the groove and the hooks of the songs never suffered because he understood the foundational role of the bass um so this made him an innovator um he was he grew up in a in an era really where he was I mean, there was a lot of change, uh, not only in the United States, but in the world, a lot of uh, technological and social cultural uh, change. Um, and this affected art in many ways, which made the 60s a prime time for musical innovation. So guys like uh, James Jamerson came to the forefront um, in a different way, right? Because he wasn't one of the artists that was in front of everybody playing, but he was influencing a lot of people. Uh, a lot of musicians, a lot of bassists and a lot of different, you know, some of the arrangers from Motown, some of the people that kind of saw his genius. Um, and so this was kind of a prime time. He was just kind of the right guy at the right, the right guy at the right time. Um, he was just able to find that great balance between groove, no choices and artistic expression. I mean, that's, I think that as, as, as an artist, that's what you want to be able to do. You want to be able to say what you want to say. So, right, put yourself in the situation of James Jamerson, who was a guy that wanted to be playing jazz, but playing pop on R&B was what was playing the bill, what was paying the bills, which is actually a very similar situation. A lot of jazz musicians find themselves nowadays. And he was able to make it interesting for himself. He was able to go in there and say like, okay, well, I'll play the gig, but I'm going to play the way I hear this music. And luckily for him, you know, he was, it worked, you know, he was good enough that he was, you know, his genius was apparent enough that he became an essential part of the Motown sound. Um, and of course, part of that, you know, unfortunately, as, as time and tendencies and fads or, or you know, different sounds change throughout the years, um, you know, his playing wasn't as sought after because one, there were a lot of people that started imitating what he was playing. So then now you, people could get like the, mo the, the Jamerson sound by a guy that kind of studied him. Um, Second, the sound was changing a lot. Um, so kind of like his sound, his flat bone string sound, which is 
super hip today <laughs> became passe. You know, a lot of people were actually playing slap or playing like brighter tones. Um, and so he wasn't as sought after as a musician, unfortunately. So, and that was kind of his downfall because he was very sad that he was not able to get the recognition he deserved. Um, and, you know, in the end, he what made him great was or you know the testament to his greatness um is in how important his basslines were to the music that he recorded so he had a full understanding of the big picture of what the song needed from the bass player perspective without again sacrificing his artistry um that's very difficult to do especially as a bass player because you're kind of seeing like oh this is the role that i play and this is what i do uh this is what people look for you to do so for him to be able to be in a situation where he was allowed to kind of have free reign and you know play what he wanted to play and express himself how he wanted to express himself in a sideman role it's great you know so i think Again, as bass, as as jazz musicians these days, we find ourselves kind of crossing over into different styles. And in fact, a lot of those styles have made their way back into jazz. Um, and I think it's it's good to be well versed on how you applied that language to those different styles, the, your language of improvisation and jazz, and be able to include them into a style where they may not necessarily exist in a natural environment. Um, again, for me as the bass player, one of the things that he opened up um, for me was James Jamerson and studying his bass lines opened up for me was that you could be more creative than just playing the root on something. I mean, I always kind of thought a little bit that way, but the way James Jamerson with the added understanding of outlining the harmony, playing all the sweet notes and also his sense of rhythm uh, which was kind of the the thing that really, really kind of made him stand out. Um, really was an, a, a realization for me. It was really kind of, <laughs> it opened my mind. And that's what, you know, you can go on YouTube and just type in James Jamerson and you'll see countless of people playing his bass lines. Um, that's how influential he is. Again, he's one of those names that you can mention in front of any bass player really of any style and they'll know who james jamerson is so check him out you know go and look for some more stuff that he does uh he's a great guy to 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 see and and you know i hope you enjoyed james jamerson awesome alejandro we really appreciate that great research on james jamerson and it's amazing how uh, you mentioned about the Motown musicians didn't get credit mm -hmm. for a lot of the things they did in the studio. So I guess one of our questions here is, how was it as a musician during that time, you know, creating and being part of huge recordings and not seeing your name in the credit? Did you do it because it's Motown? Did you do it because you wanted the work? Or you, it was just something they dealt with at the time? You know, it was a combination of things. I think as um, in, in the particular case of a lot of the Motown guys, as the label grew in popularity, um, Motown understood how important the musicians were to um, 
the sound um and i i understand I, I believe the book shows that they were getting paid initially like five dollars per session and like a bowl of soup <laughs> and eventually made their way up to like fifty dollars per session um and they were busy you know they, they kept them very very busy uh, motown had a very interesting approach to to producing music where they would record as often as they could and they um barry gordy being in Motown, Detroit, uh, adopted some of the things that they used in the in the Ford factory, which was uh, the f basically created everything in in um, in series. Uh, so they had like a quality control uh, process where basically he would get a bunch of people in a room and they would vote if something was going to be a hit or not. He had the final say to see what was going to be released, but ultimately, there's actually a really cool thing called A Cellar Full of Motown, um, which is unreleased recordings. And there's like four volumes of it and more coming out, I'm sure, which were actually songs that were fully produced and everything, and they just never made it, uh, they were never released. And something that I wanted to comment on that is that a lot of the funk brothers, a lot of the sessions, uh, especially later on, they would record the instrumental tracks without a singer. So many times they didn't even know who was going to end up recording them, but they had such a great sense of the groove and how things at this point they had developed that sound. So I think for them it was frustrating. Um, it paid the bills. It paid the bills. And from my understanding is that, you know, Motown took, decent care of the musicians you know they were it was kind of a family in that sense and the same thing with their artists obviously their artists their main artists were their priority but i think there were so many unsung heroes from this era and in fact if you look there's a lot of documentaries that have surfaced in the last 10 years i think the first one was i mentioned the book standing in the shadows of Motown, but there's also a documentary from 2002 which I think was the first of its kind, and it, it that kind of opened. It was more based on the book is based on James Jamerson. The documentary is based on um, the Funk Brothers as a whole, um, and the name says it all. Standing in the shadows of Motown, <laughs> but which is a word. It's there's a song called "Standing in the Shadows of Love" as well from Motown. So there's all sorts of. Uh, um, significance in there but there later on uh the wrecking crew which were musicians in the west coast that were doing kind of the same thing um there was a, another documentary called uh, oh i'm forgetting um muscle shoals which shows the instrument in, uh, the studio thing in alabama um same thing a lot of musicians that were essential to the sound that didn't really get the credit you know because basically they got paid for the session and that's it in fact there's funny stories there's a funny story i think um the jackie wilson song uh, higher um there was a story of james jamerson bob babbitt who i mentioned who was the other bass player heard this song they were some in some bar having a beer and the song came on and James James Jamerson said like oh that's me I played on that session and Bobby was like Bob Bobby said like no that was me <laughs> so they they had this thing where like sometimes they would do so many different sessions they couldn't keep track of who it was or sometimes they would just try different versions of the songs and but it came it got to that point where where they were busy enough working all the time but 
their first love was jazz for a lot of these guys. So, you know, to a certain extent, they were able to pay the bills and then go do their 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 thing uh, as artists. But I I don't think I think a lot of these guys enjoyed doing the work and enjoyed, especially the the it was a tight knit uh, tight tight knit group that of the musicians that were part of Motown. So, you know, definitely in the seventies, um, studio musicians became more of their own stars. I mean, you get guys like Nathan East, bass player, you know, who played in a lot of recordings and he's kind of a superstar in his own right. Um, and, you know, within, you know, he's not well known as a pop artist or anything like that, but he played with Eric Clapton and countless other people. So there were guys that were able to be credited later on, but um, I think some of the early guys just kind of suffered through a lot of kind of what's happening today with the music industry in the sense of a shift. And right now we're dealing with the digital world streaming and not getting paid enough royalties because the whole um, foundation, the whole rug was moved from out of everybody, you know, in, in the sense of, oh, this is how we're going to get musicians paid. Finally, they figure out and then all of a sudden the medium medium changes. So now we're consuming streaming and then we're trying to catch up with it and say like, okay, how are we going to deal with this now? You know, again, session musicians still just get paid for whatever. And then some, some session musicians actually got smart and realized, you know what, I'm giving to this song much more than just what they brought to me. I kind of rearranged this song in a sense and they started getting credit as songwriters as well. So, but these guys kind of uh, created the foundation of how that started changing throughout the years so yeah i don't think a lot of them were happy with not getting the credit but i think they were very happy of having had the influence that they did regardless yeah when i hear you play what's going on by marvin Gaye, i mean that is an iconic <laughs> groove uh, by James Jamerson, and it's so neat to put the names and the faces to the sounds that everyone loves. And as you mentioned, you know, now nowadays music has changed with electronic music, but I think that's what makes this era classic because it's live music, live musicians in the studio, and that feel is there, and it's always gonna live. So. Totally. I want to thank you so much for the great research on James Jamerson and just want to remind everyone uh, you can always check out any past sessions at uh, www.clearwaterjazz.com slash education and uh, continue to tell everyone about the great things you're hearing here at the Young Lions virtual sessions and we look forward to seeing you here at the next one. Have an awesome day everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Clearwater Jazz Holidays, Young Lions Jazz Master Virtual Sessions. Thank you to our friends at Marine Max Clearwater for helping to present this podcast series. To learn more about the Clearwater Jazz Holiday Annual Festival tradition, other special events throughout the year, and our year-round education and outreach, please visit clearwaterjazz.com.